Welcome to Hub and Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub and Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Jamison Conklin, editor of LNG Insight, which provides subscribers with North American LNG news and pricing, plus key European and Asian fundamentals. Today, I'm joined by Brad Hitch, an NGI special contributor with a lot of experience working in LNG and natural gas trading, really uh, across the world. Um, welcome, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jamison. Yeah, so I wanted to um, have Brad on today to introduce him and sort of plug the LNG column that he's been writing for uh, LNG's NGI's LNG Insight here um, every other week. Um, so we'll uh, talk about that some more, uh, along with a few of the trends dominating global gas right now. Uh, but first, Brad, uh, you're in Houston right now, but as I said, you you did a stint, um, you know, overseas. You helped. Uh, established one of the first LNG trading desks. You know, you've you've held positions with with various companies. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to steal your thunder here. So um, tell us a little bit more uh, about your background and uh, your experience in the sector. Uh, thanks, Jameson. Yeah. Um, so I started actually in uh, in energy trading back in 1999 with Enron of all things, and um, I had. Uh, really only been there for about six months before I got my first taste of LNG. So um, all the way back, I guess it would have been um, January of 2000. Uh, I started working for um, a team at Enron that did long-term LNG contracting for some of its projects overseas. And that eventually led to setting up an LNG trading desk in London with Enron, which led to me living in, you know, living in London from 2000, I guess, 2001. And, uh, and then obviously things happened with Enron. And, and I, so I spent um, about 17 years working in London after that uh, with commodity trading banks um, or banks traded commodities, I should say, um, and, and eventually with Chenier. But my entire experience was either European gas trading, so NBP in the old days and then later TTF, or um, LNG trading. Uh, with a little bit of, of some origination of both of those things kind of thrown in. Okay, cool. Yeah, so a little bit of everything there. And then, um, you know, you, you have the Enron connection too, um, obviously. Um, but, you know, so, okay, we saw your, um, you know, expertise as a value add for our subscribers, especially when you, you know, think about the complexities of, uh, you know, the LNG market. But, um, you know, what do you hope to accomplish with with this column you're writing for NGI or or maybe another way uh, for me to ask that is, you know, what info do you think is missing out there for the market? Well, um, well, I think what I what I'd really like to accomplish is to to bring the U.S. market participants up to speed on on LNG. Um, you, you know, when I first went to Europe all those years ago, uh, there were not many LNG imports into Europe, and they really didn't integrate so much with the trading market. But what happened, obviously, over time is, is uh, people built out terminals, 
the traders in Europe that were trading natural gas became much more involved in, in LNG. And you, you started to see kind of more of an integration. Um, it's not, you know, not, I mean, there's still silos and everything, but you started to see um, people within the, um, you know, w- within the LNG trading communities in London and Geneva, and to a certain extent, both, uh, you know, the gas traders in both of those places become much more conversant between LNG and, and natural gas. And when I moved here uh, with Chenier back, I guess it was in 2017, one of the observations that I had, and, you know, bear in mind, I hadn't lived here in, in a long time, was that um, the, the whole LNG, uh, you know, commercial phenomenon, if you will, had kind of taken place. And, and you know, you, you were starting to see um, all these exports from Chenier and some of the other projects. But what you weren't really seeing was a, you know, the same level of interaction um, between, you know, ordinary gas market participants in the U.S., and the LNG market. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I've noticed over the last few years, you are beginning to see a lot more interest. You're beginning to see, um, you know, continued interest from participants in this market. So what I'm hoping to accomplish really isn't so much to, uh, it's a combination of things. One, it's to, it's to really explain some of the nuances of what people are seeing. And then to point them um, to a certain extent towards information that they may not necessarily think is relevant. Um, and, and set a little bit of context also in terms of what information, you know, may be relevant. People will see certain things will get, you know, kind of published a lot. European storage is an obvious one. Um, but, you know, sometimes you'll see, uh, behave, you know, purchase patterns in, in different um, markets. And what I, you know, what I do hope to do with this column is introduce some of these topics for U.S. participants, but in the context of the overall fundamentals for LNG. So when they read something about European storage and they read something about, you know, um, you know, India or Pakistan have come out and started buying more cargoes, they can, you know, they can begin to tie that back into what that actually means for the call on U.S. gas from LNG and then ultimately what it means to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of bits and pieces to the LNG market, and it's it's definitely I think more complex than uh, you know the pipeline market here in in North America. I just kind of want to back up to you said that you landed in Europe in what was it ninety nine two thousand is is when you were when you got uh, over 2000. there. Two thousand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know you you had mentioned too that you know obviously at the time you know people weren't really talking a lot about LNG, and I think that that just kind of demonstrates how how nascent um, this this market still is. It's still very much an, an evolving market. I mean, that really wasn't all that long ago um, no. when you think about that. I mean, would you agree? Oh, I, I agree. I mean, it, you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, three lifetimes ago, but it really, and you know, <laughs> yeah. in the scheme of things, it, it certainly wasn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but an interesting point there, uh, nonetheless. So, okay, you've already written um, a three-part series on the need for a better LNG index, but you've got another uh, you're working on right now um, about you know various aspects of the LNG market, sort of along the lines of, of what you kind of just touched on. I mean, why are you writing that series? Eh? Can you tell us more about this? You know, you know, wh- why are you pursuing it? Well, um, this series, you know, which I hope to kind of roll out over sort of the next six columns. Um, to me, really is is kind of at the heart of the mission of this column as I see it, right? Which is to give 
people in the U.S. a very good explanation as to how some of these pieces fit together um, when when they're seeing things and to start steering them in the direction of of thinking how to you know thinking about how to examine uh, the global gas market, not just the LNG market, but also you know as it pertains to Europe and um, and really kind of what got me started uh, you know the the very last column of the so the third column of the earlier series, I think um, I kind of concluded with a statement about people needing to be able to understand the, you know, what European gas storage levels are. I, I think I might have actually mentioned you know West African production outages might be mm-hmm. the thing that matters a lot to people in the U.S. gas market that aren't necessarily involved in LNG. And uh, you know when I started thinking about what comes next, I actually thought, well, this is probably a challenge I've just laid down for myself. And I need to probably start getting into how these different pieces fit together, um, so that you know, so that I can lay some of the some lay some of these things out for people. Yeah, and that's it's interesting that you said that because you kind of anticipated my my next question. I mean, all this is really important when it comes to you know uh, the Gulf Coast. I mean, there's there's a lot of LNG capacity that's planned for the United States right now. I think we're right around. 14 billion cubic feet a day. And I think, um, you know, when you, when you think about golden pass, Plaquemines, Corpus Christi stage three, that would take us to about 20 billion cubic feet a day of, of peak capacity by 2025. That doesn't include, um, about 12 other projects or so that have been approved by FERC, um, and are working towards an FID. And a few of those are closed too. But um, my point here is is that you had written uh, in that last series on developing a better LNG price index that, you know, all this growth and liquefaction capacity brings with it the potential for uh, U.S. LNG to be sort of a a swing producer that can balance global flows um, in the future. So, I mean, can you expand on that a little bit and and, and maybe address whether or not that that presents a danger um, for, you know, consumers? I mean, are they going to feel the squeeze of exports more and more? Is what happens in West Africa going to matter more here in the U.S. as time goes on, given all the capacity that is being added? Well, um, so what what I meant by that, and, and so, the, you know, the short answer is yes. I think, I don't know that I would necessarily characterize it as a squeeze, but I'll talk about that in a second. But I mm-hmm. think certainly that they're going to feel the impact. And, um so, you know, when you think about it, um, over the last, I guess, you know, we've we've really been with the exports now um, for, in terms of uh, commercial operation date for the projects for, I guess, about seven years in total. Um, and most of the time, as the, you know, production volumes out of the U.S., as the export volumes have been building up, um, you know, we have consistently either been in a world that we where we spend most of our time where, you know, the rest of the world would need all the LNG that the U.S. could produce every single day. And if it could produce more, it'll take it right. That's generally been the way things have been. Mm-hmm. But, but we have had a brief period um, brought on mainly by the pandemic where we, you know, we didn't the world didn't need. Um, all of the LNG which the U.S. could produce, which at that point in time was was actually less than 10 BCF a day anyway, right? And um, but then you know the pandemic ended, and and also the you know the some of the glut as it was then was kind of um, cut a little bit short also by the uh, by the hurricane 
in the U.S. or that you know one a hurricane specifically that year. But what? And then you you know you kind of entered a, a few more years where the world really wanted every bit of molecule of U.S. LNG it could get its hands on. But the thing is, so we've we've experienced that all or not very much kind of phenomenon as we've had, you know, three BCF of, of export capacity, six, nine, you know, now we're at 13. But the thing is, at some point, naturally, you know, the world is going to need, you know, certainly is going to need LNG from the U.S. probably every single day going forward. But is it really going to need 20 every single day? Is it going to need 18, 17? You know, will there be days where it only needs 13 or 14? And some of those, you know, some of those those swings over a period of time, you know, can be pretty significant. I mean, if you look at the total volume that's coming, you know, now, and this is even before some of that expansion, you know, it relative to, you know, other demand points in the U.S., it genuinely is a lot of gas demand, right? And so... You know, as you think about that going forward, when you, you know, when you think about what that means that, you know, you might have periods where, you know, even though gas demand globally is strong, it might be down by a BCF, two BCF for a particular, you know, period of time. Um, some of those swings, what I, what I, you know, what I'm trying to enable people to, to prepare themselves for in this column is not to be taken by surprise when, when they see certain things. So, you know, when you see storage levels in Europe, for example, building up to the way they are now, you know, what are the implications of that in the third quarter uh, of this year, you know, for the third quarter of this year for the overall gas market? Um, you know, what when we see, for example, um, so, you know, if, if we read an article that, you know, gee, um, you know, there's a lot of heat in the Middle East. I mean, there, there always is, but maybe an, an extraordinary amount that's causing a, a significant pull on power and cooling demand, what does that mean for, you know, what does that potentially excess demand in July mean for U.S. production? And um, and so really what the, the goal with this column is to, to let people start seeing some of those headlines and understand, okay, you know, this may mean that, you know, we're looking at the, the U.S., or the, you know, the world maybe doesn't need the full capacity from the U.S., but one of the things I would say, though, is that because, um, you know, what I would kind of anticipate, because there is so much, uh, infra- you know, investment made to, to pull production and, um, you know, and, and have pipeline capacity and so on going into these plants when these projects are built, that in many instances that might actually feel like pushing gas back into the system rather than a pull. So, you know, for what that's yeah, that's Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting point, you know. Um, and something to consider, especially when you think about the fact that, you know, exports from the U.S. and lower 48 have only been going on for for seven years. You know, things are uh, very much evolving still. So. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Um, OK, so I want to switch gears right now um, and take your temperature a little bit on everything that's um, kind of going on out there in the market these days. You know, we're coming out of a crazy year uh, with with the war in Ukraine. Uh, Europe shift away from Russia, really a 180 um, from where we were during COVID-19 just a, a few short years ago. So, I mean, I always like to ask this, but what do you think of everything that's happened? I mean, is there is there any precedent in, in your mind when it when it comes to the LNG market for all this stuff? Uh, well, no. I mean, you know, I've, <laughs> I've been around a long time. I don't know that I've ever, well, I shouldn't say I don't know. I, I've certainly nev- never lived through, uh, you know, a war that knocked out a significant part of 
production in, in one of the big demand centers in the world. Um, you know, the, the closest thing in terms of just the overall disruption or dislocation um, that, you, you know, that I've experienced was the, the Fukushima disaster. Um, I guess that would have been about 12 years ago now. And, you know, that felt a little bit like this in the sense, well, it was a little bit different because that, that wasn't as severe, um, but it also kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, so that was a situation where, you know, one day it looked like the market was going to be slightly loose. And the next day, all of a sudden, you know, there, there wasn't any LNG and people were scrambling, mm-hmm. you know, all over the place. Um, this, of course, has been different in that there was kind of a, a slow buildup, both in terms of the behavior pattern of Gazprom. And then, you know, then you kind of saw what was going on in the border. And then, you, you know, you had a period where you, you know, you did have gas supply coming in, but it eventually trickled down to zero and you got to where, you know, you had Nord Stream and you got to where you are now. So um, this is obviously a, you know, this has been a slower motion, uh, you know, phenomenon, if you will, and uh, pretty unprecedented. I think, you know, I have to say the, the market, I think, is all in all, the markets reacted pretty well. Um, I mean, you know, I guess I, I probably can say that because I wasn't paying $100 per MBTU uh, <laughs> yeah. gas prices a few months ago. But um, but at the same time, you know, I think if you would have said, you know, and again, that the, the weather's had a lot to do with this. But if you would have said, you know, six or nine months ago that you'd be in the position storage level wise and infrastructure level wise you are right now in Europe, you'd have, you would have probably taken it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, no doubt that all this has been like an inflection point. But another interesting thing, too, is that the script is, is kind of flipped, too. Right. I mean, Europe is really seen driving the market here in the coming years. And Asia has sort of helped to balance things over the last year or so. So it's kind of like a a role reversal. But I mean, would you expect that to continue longer term or or do you think that that Asia is still likely to pay like a major role here um, for the market in the future? You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, So the first observation, obviously the, the obvious thing that would cause this script to flip back um, would be a return of Russian gas to the way it was before all this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I'm, you know, and so that's, you know, prognosticating on Russian politics is obviously outside of my um, zone of expertise. But, you know, if you did see an end to the fighting relatively quickly, um, you know, there are still so many things that have happened along the way, not the least of which is, you know, damage to the Nord Stream pipeline that I think it would take some time for those, you know, those volumes to resume. Um, and so let's just assume that we're going to be in a world for a while where this this situation is kind of the new normal. What you're really only beginning to see now, I think, is, um, you know, the sort of the price formation levels when you see scarcity in Europe. So if you look at what we've just, you know, the winter we just come out of, we had demand, um, you know, reduced significantly, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Not just the weather demand, but, you know, um, or not just, you know, not just the weather related demand, but, um, but you know, just uh, voluntarily or, you know, by not, not so much voluntarily, but by, you know, by price, uh, industrial consumer demand has been a lot lower during the winter than it's been. And, um, you know, so what will be interesting to see going forward is as you have built out more infrastructure and it. You know, and you, you've got more import capacity, a little bit more than you had before, and you're probably going to have some more still to come. Um, 
and you know, will you will you see who you know, kind of who will take the the lead, Europe or Asia, and kind of determining where spot prices go? And you know, in my heart of hearts, and I you know, I guess I've been around the LNG market so long, I tend to think in time, Asia will take that back. And the reason I think that is just quite simply because in Europe you do have the storage, um, you have other sources of flexibility. And, you know, this was a huge shock, what just happened. Um, and I, right. it's, it's fair to say that people weren't used to it. But I do tend to think that given enough time to kind of, you know, deal with the situation, that the European market will probably get to a stage where it still has more flexibility than Asia does. And um, something you've probably heard me say before, um, you know, LNG is not, LNG is a market where you do not have a great deal of storage to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the markets, you know, that, that rely on LNG generally have not had a tremendous amount of underground storage and LNG storage itself is very, very expensive. So within that context, you know, you just don't have as much flexibility in a lot of these markets. And so I think as Europe begins to get, you know, recover and to, to get into something that looks like a normal situation, I think there will be periods where Asia will probably take the baton. Now, what we have also seen this winter is that when push comes to shove, the Europeans will pay these incredibly high prices. And right. so, you know, that was something that I, you know, um, I, that that is something I never thought I would see in my life, obviously. But again, so I, I do I think it's I, I think maybe what what we're going to see is the regime shift between Europe and Asia probably flips back and forth on a more frequent basis than it ever did before. Right, right. Things have definitely gotten more interesting, um, and it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here in the years ahead. That gives us a good segue into my last question here. Um, you know, given where things are at today with Europe, and you know, and, and, and falling prices, the conflict in, in Ukraine that's still going on, what are some of the things you're going to be keeping an eye on um, nearer term this year in the in the LNG market? Well, you know, the first starts with, again, it starts with Europe. So obviously we have incredibly high storage levels on, on a percentage, but, you know, on an absolute basis uh, coming into the injection season. I mean, you know, when you look at where we are right now, um, you know, we were, we were very, very close to 2020 levels, right? And, um, you know, I think probably when we start injections, which – well, we, when the Europeans start injections, which should be, you know, within the, you know, normally would, would be within the next kind of three weeks, four weeks, something like that. Um, they'll probably start that injection season just a few terawatt hours below where they were in 2020. And so if you look at the injections that you had in 2020 versus injections you had last year, you know, it was something, the difference was, would have accumulated to something like 300 terawatt hours or, you know, about 300 cargoes of LNG, if you will, um, over the course of that injection season. Now, bearing in mind, you know, there are also a lot of things that, and so what, in terms of what I'm going to keep, really be keeping an eye on, you know, will the Norwegians continue to push, you know, the, the volume that they have um, into the market? So, um, you know, there, there was one of the unheralded stories, maybe at least in the U.S., was the extent to which in the face of this crisis, the Norwegian, um, you know, I, the, the production out of Norway really ramped up throughout yeah. the down period. Right. So that, yeah. that was, that was a big part of the story. Will that continue? 
Um, you know, you're not going to have, I don't think you're going to have the same heavy maintenance in Norway that you did last year. So you might see, you know, high levels overall, but maybe not so much front loaded the way you did last year. Um, and then of course, what I'm going to, you know, personally be very interested in, in trying to suss out is what demand is in Europe outside of the injection. So we know the injections will be low, you know, you know, Obviously, um, I, you know, I think other fuels that probably wouldn't have been burned ordinarily, like coal, you know, were um, during this, you know, during this crisis to, to, to save gas. And so are you going to see a little bit more uptick in gas to the extent possible from just, you know, people, you know, if you will, um, really trying to make up for a little bit of lost time in terms of having had to maybe consume too much CO2. So those will be some of the things that I'm going to be looking for in Europe. Um, but also really to see kind of, you know, where I guess in theory, we're kind of coming out of a, a post-COVID period again in China. So really looking for Chinese demand also um, just to, to kind of measure that as we're as we're going into kind of Q2 and Q3 and, you know, see, are we, you know, are we, you know, are we looking to, you know, are, are we, you know, kind of seeing a return to, to really healthy Chinese levels? Are we going to see a good, strong um, Asian demand pull over the summer? Uh, because if not, you know, if we do have muted demand for LNG in Europe and, you know, you don't necessarily, if, if that isn't really kind of compensated for by large demand in Asia, um, then even though we've just come out of a price environment that was $100, you know, you could see some, you know, continued downward pressure um, as, you know, builds in floating inventory and, and kind of maybe even lower prices in, in LNG in, in the second and third quarters, or really maybe really the third quarter. So that's that's the kind of thing I'm looking out for. Yeah, China's definitely a wild card for sure. Um, well, I, 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 think that that, uh, I think that that does it for today. Um, thanks again for joining us, Brad. We appreciated having you and uh, look forward to your upcoming columns. Thanks, Jameson. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and thanks to all of you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. U.S. LNG exports have changed the global energy paradigm. NGI's LNG Insight provides a North American perspective to the global LNG market by tracking not only key LNG-related data within the U.S., but also important European and Asian fundamentals that may influence demand for North American natural gas exports. Visit natgasintel.com backslash LNG dash insight to understand what our LNG service includes and how it can help you make more informed business decisions today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.